Welcome to Food Chat, a weekly show that's all about food production, including farming, ranching, processing, and basically all things involved in getting food from the field to your plate. Now, let's get you reconnected to your food, and here are your hosts, Greg Bloom and Chef Jackson Lamb. Talk about an uphill battle, 2,000 acres of beans and cattle. He don't ever get rattled. He just goes to the sun goes down. Welcome to Food Chat. Food Chat is about all things food. We have talked to farmers and ranchers, people actually that produce food and food processors. And today we have on our show a special guest, Nina Ty Schultz. Nina, welcome to the show. Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Sure, of course. We're glad you could join us. Now we've had you on before, uh, Nina, and um but we have a new group of listeners every week on the radio show and the podcast, so I think it would be good to start with you just explain a little bit about your background, the book you wrote, and then what you do at the Nutrition Coalition. Sure. Um, I'm a science journalist. I spent about 10 years researching for a book called The Big Fat Surprise, which is it came out um, about eight years ago, but it's still a little bit of a cult classic, I would say, because it explains the whole history of how we came to have these erroneous low-fat diet recommendations, and also some other surprising things about fat, that uh, about saturated fat, vegetable oils, and how pretty much every good fat, non-fat, bad fat <laughs> uh, story that we've heard turns out not to be supported by the science. Um, after that, I continue to write for New York Times, Wall Street Journal, other places, but I also started a nonprofit called the Nutrition Coalition that's really dedicated to trying to get uh, our policies, our various policies, to reflect the best and most current science, which they truly don't. And I think we'll get into a little bit, bit on that show here with you. Yeah, that, that's great. Thank you for the background, uh, Nina. And let's start with the Dietary Guidelines Committee. They are, what, getting ready to meet again and then maybe explain the process. I think it's like an every five-year cycle. So maybe you could explain a little bit of how the Dietary Guidelines Committee works and then who gets to be put on that committee, who selects it, and then just a little bit of background on that would be great. Yeah, and maybe we should just let your listeners know the Dietary Guidelines is the government's top nutrition policy. And even though you think Nobody cares about it. It affects each and every American. It's what's served in schools, feeding programs for the elderly, the military, all doctors pretty much, and all healthcare practitioners prescribe the diet guidelines to you. If you hear the advice, eat more fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, and seeds, and avoid, uh, you know, only eat lean meat and low-fat dairy, that's the guidelines. So they are supposed to be updated every five years, and for that process, which is just starting now, they appoint a outside expert committee called the Dietary Guideline Advisory Committee appointed uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, they are supposed to be the outside independent experts. Our research um, in a paper that I pub published with other authors that came out in a journal of the National Academy of Sciences shows that the committee's role has been greatly diminished, and it is, I think this is a direct quote from our paper, that they're little more than window dressing to the process, which otherwise has been largely taken over by the USDA uh, bureaucrats, officials who are in charge of reviewing the science. I mean, a kind of amazing story about that is that in the last go-around of these guidelines, this 
the USDA office actually published like 43 um, fully completed scientific reviews before the committee was even convened. Hmm. So that just tells you a lot is going on outside the purview of this committee, and that's actually, con- you know, it breaks kind of regulatory rules that's not supposed to happen. Right, right. Well, I know it is frustrating for people like on the outside that, you know, aren't living in the beltway and don't really know how things work and how much um, of a role the committee plays versus the bureaucrats versus the, you know, people that are setting policy. Uh, so maybe you could just explain a little bit about like what what is the what is the the roadblocks to getting evidence-based science uh, studies to influence the dietary guidelines. In particular, I'm talking about maybe low low carb diets, you know, and and re- revising the the food compass. And you know, I know we use the food compass now or the plate instead of the pyramid, but it's been a joke for years that if we just flipped the food pyramid upside down, it would probably work better. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a Simpsons episode where they they, do, <laughs> they have it's hilarious. You should look it up where they say, you know, alert, alert, we have to flip the pyramid upside down. The pyramid is wrong. I think that uh, I, I want your listeners to know about the major ways in which the dietary guidelines are wrong. First of all, it's wrong to have a cap on saturated fat, and there are now more than 20 review papers by scientists all over the world reviewing that data, going back to clinical trials that, uh, large clinical trials that happened um, in the 60s and 70s and saying, you know what, we got it wrong on saturated fats and there should be no cap on them. And that cap is why we're told to eat you know, low-fat milk and only lean meat. So that really would have a significant impact if we could get that science right. The guidelines have also completely ignored the entire scientific literature on low-carbohydrate diets, which now accounts is now, uh, you know, there are 8,000 papers only on the clinical trials in low-carb, which is the highest quality evidence. I'm not even talking about all the lower quality evidence studies. That's a huge body of scientific knowledge that's being ignored. And um, in fact, we have in emails of, of conversations saying where you know they say we should not be burying this evidence that they know is out there. And it's by one committee member who said, you know, this diet is superior for weight loss. Why are we not telling people? So that's a huge oversight, and I would say the third one, really relevant for a lot of people, is that lower is not better for salt. Um, For sodium, a moderate amount is where um, multiple studies showed that there's the lowest rate of cardiovascular complications or, or outcomes, and so, you know, negative outcomes. So those are three big ways the guidelines are not following the most current science. Why? Short answer two major issues. One is is cognitive dissonance, right? This is the way it's always been. How could we be getting it wrong? We can't be wrong. There are probably legal issues for getting it wrong. And there is just, there are generations of scientists, bureaucrats, officials who have been endorsing one diet and they cannot change their minds. Um, so that's obviously a complex issue and I'm simplifying it, but that's a big issue. And another big issue are is the influence of um, of corporate corporations in the food you know large multinational food companies and also um, big pharma in influencing our policy and we have there's just an abundance of evidence I mean just to give you an example in the last set of guidelines the top official for the 
this area in at USDA was somebody who came straight out of the Corn Syrup Refiners Association. Another person in that chain of command was, had come straight out of the Grocery Manufacturers Association. And, and there's a fundamental problem with having the guidelines headquartered at USDA. USDA is not sensitive, has no response to health care costs. So that's not their problem. If hmm. their diet is, is making people sick and fat, that has no repercussions for them. Their job is to promote foods. So there's no feedback loop where we can get the people who are advising about diet into the in the same on the same like balance sheet as those people who have to pay for the diseases that result from diet so that's just a fundamental structural problem right right well to your two points the history all anyone has to do is do what I do and go to their doctor once a year for an annual checkup and you fill out a diet uh, survey or they ask you questions about what you're eating and they're concerned to keep you healthy of course and I'm in pretty good shape for a person in my age mid-50s but they want me to cut back my doctor wants me to cut back on my meat consumption because I eat a lot of meat every day and uh, when I ask him why it's because of what he was taught in med school and they're still taught that I think today is that uh, you need to cut cut back on your saturated fats and you can't you know eat whole fat uh, yogurt or whole fat cheese or whole fat drink whole fat milk and that's all you know we know that's not true now from all the studies and even from our own personal experience living uh, in the world and eating but and the second thing I was saying about the corporate influence is all you have to do is walk around the supermarket and see who's got the money or watch who has money for uh, NFL TV commercials on the Super Bowl. It's the it's the sugar and it's the, the, the grocery people. They have a lot of money and the Whole Foods people, vegetables, the meats, they, they don't have that kind of money to pay for that kind of advertising. So you, you can see how easy it is that they influence policy. Yeah, it's absolutely true. I mean, it's just at every level the these large multinational food companies are influencing the science. They pay the scientists. They pay universities. They pay for the conferences where people discuss the science. And uh, and then they are lobbying and influencing government policy, not to mention their, their members are actually serving as officials in USDA and HHS. I mean, it's just it's the corporate influence is so ubiquitous. I know you want to talk about something called the Food Compass, which is a, a food rating system that came out of Tufts University, a, a leading school in nutrition, considered one of the most prestigious and highly influential in government policy. The leader of the Tufts Nutrition School is a top advisor to the Biden White House. What was their Food Compass chart, which was like a, a food rating system? Like 95 out of 100 points was uh, was Cheerios, um, right. and then that was followed by you know eat these eat more of foods I and mean, frosted mini wheats, um, Count Chocula, Lucky Charms, Honey Nut Wheat, uh, Shredded Wheats, um, and all of that, all of those cereals, more than 100 brand name cereals were considered more than twice as healthy as an egg cooked in butter. Ground beef. Um, was even lower than an egg cooked in butter. And even more shockingly, or equally shocking, was that all the fake foods, like cheese, you know, imitation cheese, fake meat, meat replacement, all of those foods were ranked far higher than real foods. Now, this is coming out of Tufts University, top nutrition school in the country. 
So what are we to think of our experts? I mean, right. there's clearly, I mean, it's just impossible for us to have confidence in these uh, expert opinions, unfortunately. Yeah, when I saw that, I think I first saw that uh, Food Compass on Twitter, I think you had tweeted out, and I thought it was offered in satire, like, oh, that's funny, you know, that's that's not really happening. But then <laughs> it was for real, and then it, it violates all the common sense we learned growing up. I mean, just that, you know, sugar cereals are better for you than chicken and ground beef. Like, that's just nonsense, right? But that's for real. That's not satire. And so... Do, is is it just that big money influence again that's that's setting the food compass agenda forward? Do you think? I I believe that money, this big food money, has so saturated the field of nutrition for so many decades that inside the world of nutrition, this is normal. This this food compass came out. Nobody questioned it. The team itself, so you know, they did a study to let's say, quote-unquote, validate it, a team of researchers in Greece did a couple of studies to see if the food compass could be applied in Greek hospitals. I mean, just imagine serving Count Chocula cereal at a hospital, which maybe that already happens. But I just think that there's, and there's nobody in the field of nutrition who objected to it. And that tells me that the entire field has been saturated by this kind of thinking, I mean, the leader of the Tough Nutrition School, again, somebody named um, Darush Mozafarian, he, he uh, is the top nutritionist for the World Economic Forum. He's the top nutrition advisor to the White House. Um, he has, more than any other nutritionist I know, has the ear of members of Congress, influential members who are focused on nutrition. I, I really, I think that this, the big food, these companies have just come to dominate this space. And it's sort of the new normal for them. And part of their playbook is to say, don't listen to those crazy Internet people, and we're so concerned about misinformation on the Internet. But when this is what our experts are, are this is the new norm in amongst experts, you really have to wonder, where can people find good nutrition advice, if not from some, someplace else than these, these expert university communities? Well, let's talk about a report that I think was published in January uh, by the U.S. News. It was a report called, I believe it was called Best Diets. Was was that report evidence-based? Or tell us a little bit about what, what they found. <laughs> well, U.S. News and World Report is famous for its best whatever, fill-in-the-blank um, you know, stories, right? It best colleges, best cruise ships, best this, best this, that, and, and they're starting to be called out. It's been a very lucrative business stream for them, but now they're being boycotted by top medical schools, top law schools who are saying, hey, we think there's something wrong with your methodology and your rankings, and guess what? Their best diet issue, which comes out the first week of January every year for all those New Year dieters, is also hugely flawed. Mm. It's something that I have been writing about for years now, um, and just to give you a sense of that, they're Number two diet is something called the flexitarian diet. When I went, I wrote a column on this. When I went and looked um, on the science database for clinical trials on that diet, they have a total of 157 people tested on that diet with no evidence at all for weight loss. Mm -hmm. Then I searched other top diets on its list, Mayo Clinic Diet, Dr. Wild, Nutritarian, Octavia, um, and there were zero clinical trials on that 
di- those diets. So they had not even been studied. And then something else called volumetric diet, <laughs> tied for sixth place on the list, had a single six-week trial that was supported by the Kellogg Company for that diet. And their findings were that ready-to-eat cereals were a good way to lose weight. So meanwhile, the low-carbohydrate diet, again, um, I, you know, I've been writing about the science on this for quite a while, so I'm familiar with this, but, you know, more than 8,000 papers on over 100 clinical trials showing superior outcomes for weight loss, extremely good outcomes for inflammation, most heart disease risk factors, and the complete remission of type 2 diabetes, that diet was, remains and has been for years at the rock bottom of the list. So, you know, this is, again, like, this is, it's extremely frustrating to see and um you know i can only assume i mean i looked at the expert panel they they have basically their expert panel is led by um vegan activists and um and they really have very little balance on that panel plus the whole system of rankings base is based on kind of qualitative opinion making by the experts who just put out their rankings from one to five and, and don't have to support it with any evidence. So it's just not a rigorous approach. So for, so, our, for uh, our listeners, you know, uh, that, that are thinking about their own health and, you know, we're identifying this problem and <clears throat> who can you trust regarding food advice? You, know, you can't probably trust the USDA Dietary Guidelines Committee. Uh, you can't probably trust your own doctor like mine tells me to stop eating saturated fats and eat more carbs. Um, you know, you can't trust the U.S. News uh, World Report. So where, where do people find, uh, would you say, good sound advice uh, to, to find a solution for their own health? Well, that's a good question. And I would suggest um, following, you know, finding a low-carb, uh, a, a low-carbohydrate or metabolic health practitioner, which you can find if you look up something called the Society for Metabolic Health Practitioners, uh, that is a place where you can find a practitioner who knows something about metabolic health and what is the um, the effect of particularly of carbohydrates on your health. Um, and, and those are folks who know how to send type 2 diabetes into remission and, and help with weight loss. My group, the Nutrition Coalition, which is at nutritioncoalition.us, is just in the process of putting up a whole lot of resources um, for patients and for doctors. And I think that will be another resource for them. Uh, So, uh, you know, I think that people have to do their own research, unfortunately, but, um, but the good news is that there is, there are a huge number of studies. And by the way, people who want to go look at the studies themselves, they can go to something called PubMed and which is a government website has all the studies and just search the terms ketogenic and low carb and see what you come up with. That's good advice. I've done that a little bit. Uh, I would encourage them first though, to read your book because your book, the Big Fat Surprise talks about the research that you did, and you kind of had to weed through some studies that weren't quite what they should be as far as evidence-based. Um, so th- that's great advice. And I didn't know that the Nutrition Coalition um, was putting that together. That's awesome. Hey, I, would do, I do want to ask you, though, about an email I got, um, I believe today from the Nutrition Coalition, about what we can do, what grassroots thing we can do to help influence the new dietary guidelines policy. So could you maybe explain that to our listeners? Yes. 
One of our efforts at the Nutrition Coalition has been to get the USDA to review the science on low carbohydrate, just to ask the question and actually review the science because, as I was mentioning earlier, it's been um, suppressing, burying, or ignoring the science to date. So we had a write-in campaign to ask USDA to please include a question, a scientific question on low-carbohydrate diet. That, if you go to find us on Twitter, it should also be on our website, again, nutritioncoalition.us. You can find how to submit your own comment uh, and, and, and ask USDA and the new Dietary Guideline Committee to please stop ignoring the science on low-carbohydrate diets, ask a question, uh, let the science speak for itself, but, but not to ignore that nutritional approach any longer. Yeah, that's great. And I, I've done that before. And uh, if you haven't done that before, it's not that hard to do. It takes just a few minutes. And that becomes part of the public record uh, that uh, you can go online and see your, your comments and I think those of others. But you know, I'm going to just incorporate along my own little story. You know, here's a, a middle-aged guy, uh, you know, battling the bulge and not wanting to get diabetes, adult-onset diabetes, like so many Americans are getting now following the advice <laughs> that we get about how to eat. So uh, I did the keto thing and I learned how to you know put my body into a state of ketosis and skip breakfast on a lot of days and I kept going and I feel so much better I have a lot more energy and I can be able to keep the weight off so I think I'm going to put my own personal story in my comments yes put your personal story it's it's I think that's very compelling we had 77 percent of all the commenters came from people asking to, to put a low-carb question into the guidelines and many of them told their stories about struggling, even, you know, people think that people are obese or have diabetes because they eat junk food all day, but I know how many people I know who were struggling with fruits, vegetables, whole grains, really trying to do everything right. More whole grains, more fruit, uh, more granola for breakfast, oatmeal, and they just could not lose weight or get healthy. And then they, you know, they, they basically turn that pyramid upside down and eat some more fat and healthy amount of protein, and they feel so much better. So it is, I mean, and it's definitely a diet. I know people have concern that there's some kind of like payback in the long term with, uh, you know, a heart attack. That just, there's been so many studies now that have been done that show that that is just not the case. It's extremely good for reversing heart disease as well, or, or it, it's definitely not reducing mortality. People get better in every possible way on this diet. You know, have you seen any turn in the corner? with the demonization of, you know, meats and butter and cheese. I and mean, your whole book was about that, how that all got uh, demonized back, you know, 20, 30 years ago. But now is there evidence that the legacy media and the New York Times and other uh, media outlets are starting to ask good objective questions and, and kind of just be open to the fact that meat in a part of a healthy, balanced diet is actually great for our health? Um, I lament that I I think my answer has to be that I do not see that happening yet. Mm. Uh, it's just I think that in addition to the health concerns that have just been ingrained in our in our um, various newspaper in everybody's minds really, people are now not eating meat you know for the climate. They feel like that's the best way to combat climate change. To which I would just say you know find some other way. Don't take a don't take a, you know, a single domestic flight. A family of four could go vegan for a year, and it, it would have, you know, at the worst estimates, would have less of an impact on the 
climate than just not taking a plane flight. And why would you deprive yourself of like all those vitamins and minerals, which are hard to get in other um, from other foods? So, but unfortunately, I don't see that story um, getting into the mainstream media. Uh, really, even in the, on the more on the on the right, where you might expect to see that, because there's less of a sensitivity possibly to climate change issues. I just don't see it coming out yet, but. That doesn't mean, you know, I think with growing levels of anemia and depression and all these conditions that really could be remedied with a diet that includes um, healthy proteins, animal source proteins, I think maybe we'll, we'll start to see some of that change. It's been interesting to see the um, kind of the tidal wave of the plant-based um, hype kind of crash to the beach uh, last year, uh, you know, post-COVID, but, you know, there was all that money being poured into the plant-based agenda. And, you know, a lot of people believe the hype that, you know, if you care about the planet, you'll stop eating meat. But we have a product over here that doesn't cause that much environmental damage and saves water, da-da-da-da-da. Well, those uh, those companies uh, are not doing very well anymore. And I think there's probably still a role for some of those products in the marketplace, but it's not the solution to climate change like they had put forward. And we'll have to see where it goes. Yeah, I mean, there's hard, There's been almost no analysis of of the climate impact of making something in a industrial plant, a fake meat or a lab grown meat versus you know, the kind of impact realistically that raising cattle has. I mean, I think all those numbers are you know, either we don't have them or they're they're really problematic. I mean, a good resource here is, is a movie called The Sacred Cow or there's a book by the same name. I mean, there there's there's a lot of information out there that sort of challenges those kinds of numbers. And we have seen, as you say, you know, the Impossible Burger, Beyond Burger, all that, that entire sector has really cratered as has the imitation dairy market is is also headed south. So I, it's it's curious to me, though, that, you know, we haven't seen much coverage of that, but it is happening. Um, and I think that's consumers saying, like, they're kind of, they're waking up to the fact that those products are not that healthy. I mean, oat milk, that will, that's got a ton of carbohydrates that'll send your blood sugars skyrocketing, directly leading to, you know, all of the pathological pathways that lead to um, weight gain and metabolic syndrome. So, you know, I think people are sort of waking up to that. And I I just want to say one other thing, like one thing you can do in terms of advocacy is get everyone you love and care about a continuous glucose monitor so they can see for themselves what impact these foods have on their um, have on their blood sugars. Right. And if they don't know anything about a continuous glucose monitor, they can just uh, search online for it and find plenty of places that sell them and, and such, right? Yes, you can get one. Uh, there's a number of places that will that will help you get a prescription for one. They are still prescription only, but it's fascinating to see that healthy oatmeal, that banana, you cannot believe what it does to your blood sugar. And until you see it happening in real time, I think most people just can't understand it. I myself could not believe like that single cookie I had sent my blood sugar skyrocketing 50 points until I got a blood glucose monitor. I was 
completely able to deceive myself. Yeah, well, that always, <laughs> they, they taste so good, but they, they spike our blood sugar, and then we wonder why we feel so bad an hour later. So, yeah, well, hey, um, I'm sorry we're already out of time, but we'll have you back on soon. And keep up the good work at the nutritioncoalition.us. And uh, everyone, thanks for listening to Nina. And Nina, thanks for joining us on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Today's Food Chat episode was brought to you by RanchFreshMeats.com. RanchFreshMeats.com finds the best quality beef in the marketplace, but not only beef, bison and chicken and lamb and all kinds of great proteins that come from family farms that we know personally. And if not the farm, then the USDA plant. So go to RanchFreshMeats.com and sign up for the weekly newsletter because at the every week we pull a name at random and give away a box of meat. RanchFreshMeats.com Here's to the farmer that plants the fields in the spring The turn from green to that harvest honey Hold one up for the banker downtown They got him on his feet with handshake of money Here's to the farmer's wife That loves him every night Raising a son Raising a daughter, they gather around the table, send it up to the father. Somehow they get closer when times get harder. Here's to the farmer. The views and opinions expressed on KLZ 560 are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect those of Crawford Broadcasting, the station, management, employees, associates, or advertisers. KLZ 560 is a Crawford Broadcasting God and Country station.